Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet Podcast. I'm joined today by Jeff Grant, who has a fascinating story, and we're going to jump in in just a moment. Um, For context, for those who are watching, Jeff is private general counsel and a white-collar attorney um, who served almost 14 months in federal prison for a white-collar crime. Um, He's gone on to start uh, an organization called Progressive Prison Ministries, and he earned his Master's of Divinity from the Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And he also started an organization called Grant Law to help other folks who have been in similar situations to himself. Uh, He's also in recovery from addiction for over 20 years. So congratulations for all of your accomplishments. And I'm going to jump in just to ask you, Jeff, if you can give a brief version of your story, which I know has taken a lot of twists and turns, but I love our audience to have a little context because I think it's an incredible one. Thank you, Arden. It's really wonderful to be here. And, you know, it's a little daunting to hear my uh, my bio headlines at the beginning of a podcast because it really is a very, you know, complicated, nuanced story because um, I was a, uh, a lawyer in uh, New York City and then in Westchester County, which is just north of New York. And um, I uh, became a drug addict, um, not intentionally, um, but I suffered through um, a, uh, um, a ruptured Achilles tendon and then became addicted to prescription opioids uh, uh, post that. That lasted for about 10 years. And that led to just declining decision making and all kinds of physical and psychological and emotional uh, issues. Um, from there, um, I stopped being able to show up to work. I stopped being able to do um, a lot of things that I should be doing for my family, for my, my career. Um, somewhere in the uh, end of the 1990s, um, cash was drying up, uh, mostly because of my uh, drug addiction. And um, I dipped into the employee, uh, excuse me, into the uh, client trust funds, um, borrowed some money from there. Um, that happened a few more times, and that was kind of like the uh, the uh, deal with the devil. Because uh, even though I intended it would be only once, it uh, it became a kind of a recurring thing. An investigation started, and I defended myself and just defended my law license for a while. Then nine uh, eleven happened, and post nine eleven, there were SBA loan funds, much like there are now in the pandemic. There are SBA loan funds available. There were available um, EIDL funds, and um, although I would have um, been successful in applying for an EIDL, EIDL loan at the time, um, I just was couldn't help myself. I was so desperate, and I um, I lied on the application and said I had a uh, office about a block from Ground Zero. It all came tumbling down in July of uh, two thousand two when um, I couldn't defend myself any longer and I took an overdose of, uh, of, of prescription opioids and tried to kill myself. And then a few days later wound up in detox and in uh, a rehab. 
Interesting. Can you talk a little bit about the addiction piece and how that played into the latter crimes? And do you think that is true for many of the people that you've encountered throughout your career? Do you think if you hadn't developed an addictive disorder, some of these issues still would have popped up? I'm just curious how much you see the interplay there. Yeah, you know, been exploring addiction, compulsion, and white collar crime for a little while now. And, you know, even as I've accepted complete responsibility for my behavior, you know, I just watched this, uh, this uh, series on Netflix called um, Painkiller. And all these years later, you know, I didn't even realize how much I was, a, you know, a little bit player in an overwhelming societal problem of um, overprescription of opioids. Um, why that happened, what childhood trauma I had, what um, character uh, deficiencies I had, what led me into a lot of the decisions I was making. I find it's universal amongst people in our support group, in our white collar support group that meets on Monday nights. Um, everybody's got something, you know, nobody goes into this planning to be a white collar criminal. You know, they have aspirations and goals, but the, uh, the issues either are pathological or environmental. Um, sometimes it's uh, outside things that happen in their lives, and sometimes it's mental illness, drug addiction, alcohol addiction. Um, very rarely is it just greed hanging out there without some kind of underlying pathology. Makes total sense. Talk a little bit about your work at Progressive Prison Ministries, and I'm curious, you know, what are the patterns you see with clients who wind up in that organization. I'm also curious if there are people you encounter, and I hate to think this way as somebody who runs a company in the behavioral health space, but who are beyond help or who you look at and say, this is gonna be a, a harder path for them than it is for many others. Well, on one extreme, I mean, there certainly are a percentage of people who are sociopathic, and I don't know that it can provide any help for them. But as a support group, we, uh, we try to capture as many people as we can who are um, in the throes of the criminal justice system and specifically the white collar criminal justice system. They, um, you know, they've entered a new community in a new world once they've become a target or they've been arrested. And um, almost without exception, um, have to learn a new way of life in order to cope. Um, how, how to, um, develop these coping mechanisms, um, how to get success, you know, it has a lot to do with acceptance of their new social location. And everyone goes through that path differently, uh, different rates of, uh, of acceptance, different rates of, of whether or not they actually want to change. Some people never want to change. Some people can't change. Some people don't have to change because they're, co they're going through their issues and then they come out and uh, they have a, um, a family business or they still have money in the bank and they don't want to look at themselves very closely. But most people who go through it are, have been through some form of um, transformation and um, we help kind of guide them through that to a new healthier way of life and often a better way of life than when they started. Maybe not as much money, but mm -hmm. certainly uh, a, a more spiritual rather than material way of life. I guess that's one of my questions too. When you think about the folks who wind up committing white collar crimes, you know, are our 
do the financial institutions we have in this country, do they promote or unintentionally reward people who have uh, values that lead them or behaviors that lead them down this path? Um, it's, it's, you know, it's not a one size fits all, that's for sure. But, but if I, if I stood in front of the freshman class at Goldman Sachs, for example, and there are 500 young uh, people sitting there all eager to start their careers and all and sit through, you know, stupid lectures by people like me. And, um, and I looked and I said to them, look, uh, look around the room. Um, sometime in the next five to 10 years, 2% of you are going to be the subject of a criminal investigation. Would they do anything differently? Would they be more careful? I don't know. You know, the, the lore of huge benefits, um, and that could be tens of millions of dollars potentially, offsets a lot of risk. And everyone tends to, tends to think, oh, it's not going to happen to me. But of course, when it does happen to you, it um, brings down a lot more than just you. It brings down your family, it brings down uh, your friends, and sometimes an entire community. And um, so I don't think that people are aware of what the downside is and how devastating it can be. Um, do I think that institutions um, don't provide enough of that information? No, I don't think they provide enough information. And I don't think that they screen people well enough in their psychological and psychiatric profiles to determine who would be right for those jobs in, you know, that are um, exposed to uh, confidential information, insider information, things like that. But they probably do the best that they can. I mean, I don't know that, I don't know that anybody's going to do that deep of a dive in advance to find, uh, you know, to find out who's most likely to say commit insider trading. But um, sometimes it's just a, you know, a crime of opportunity. And, um, and uh, we do the best we can both as a, uh, a support group and all the ancillary services we, we provide to let them know that, you know, their, their lives aren't over and they can start again. And, and um, it doesn't have to be a, uh, a life sentence. You know, that, that, that's the thing about, about um, being uh, uh, um, convicted of a crime. You know, no matter how long the length of sentence, it's a life sentence. Of course. And um, it, it's unfair. Um, there's not a lot of public empathy and sympathy for people who are um, convicted for white collar crimes, but it's getting better. You know, there's no question that at least people understand it more. You know, it's, it's become dinner table conversation. I think that's interesting. And that was one of my questions when you think about the recovery process for folks convicted of white collar crime. You know, I think about folks who've been titans of industry, have had tremendous careers, have financially benefited at times from their behaviors. What does it look like in terms of reckoning the ego part of that of that experience with life in a more modest fashion i mean is it for folks that want to get back to some of the same success they had before is that possible can you do so in a way you know with a different lens and a different set of values or, or what are your thoughts about how folks can get to a better place emotionally kind of given where they've come from well i'm i'm an outlier you know because i actually got my law license back so I, I, I don't actually, I don't, I don't think of it as being getting my law license back. I think of it as getting my law license forward. 
because mm-hmm. I never want to go back to the levels of stress and um, and uh, other issues that led me to uh, that led me to having a problem the first time. But for the most part, people can't go back. You know, they have to kind of get into acceptance of having two separate lives: the life before um, these issues and the life after. And the life before wasn't necessarily all that great to begin with, you know, uh, not that there weren't a lot of uh, um, advantages and trappings, but usually before people um, come to us, um, they're looking over their shoulder for years. You know, things have been going in a strange direction. They're afraid of getting caught. They've been under a lot of stress for a lot of years. The, the thing is, is that if they get into acceptance about having two separate lives, um, then they can understand that maybe the first life is as a hedge funder and maybe the second life is as a, say, a drug and alcohol counselor. There's there's just mm-hmm. an example. But it can be a financial comeuppance. But it's really only the order of things that defines the problem. I mean, I can understand why a hedge funder who's making a lot of money wouldn't want a second life as a drug and alcohol counselor. That's a much more modest life. But I bet there aren't many drug and alcohol counselors who would mind a second life as a hedge fund manager. So, <laughs> sure. so, so it's not the fact that there's two separate lives. Yeah. It's really the yeah. order of them that's the issue. I think it's a great point. And I think about it as particularly problematic in certain communities. You know, if you think about New York City or Greenwich, Connecticut, all communities I know you're familiar with where you know, from my perception, and and not to say Boston, which is where I'm from, is immune from this, but there is sort of a, you know, you can't be too rich or too thin in these communities. And so when you think about what's been praised as the value sets in these neighbors, neighborhoods, you know, adjusting to from a $5 million a year salary to a $75,000 a year salary has its own impact. What, what do you see as the family's response in these situations? You know, have you seen families weather these storms effectively? Do they have particular characteristics that you think are important? Um, there's a lot of wreckage. There's a lot of damage, a lot of trauma, estrangements, divorces. Um, you know, it's rough out there. This is uh, this is people at their most, the, probably undergoing more stress in a relationship and as a family unit than they ever expected and mm-hmm. most can't tolerate it um and probably for good reasons um you know uh the the breadwinner the person who's a defendant has probably been lying living a double life i know i did and um most people who come to us um certainly report that um not a lot of trust you know, it's it's a strange thing. Uh, I, uh, I, I, let's just talk about guys for a second because it's probably easier um, because because most white collar crime is, uh, um, is with males. So a guy could have, uh, you know, a couple could have gotten married and they had this, they had dreams and they had uh, they were going to raise a family, maybe move to the suburbs and you know l- live a nice life. But it's ten years after now, and. Mm-hmm. Um, dad has been emotionally detached for quite a while and uh, there's problems in the marriage although they may not surface to the outside world there's a lot of issues going on because of that they're not real partners anymore and now these uh, these things are happening maybe dad's being asked to uh to make ethical uh choices that um he um 
that he uh, he doesn't want to make, or he maybe's crossed the line all over uh, already, and um, he wants to um, really wants to go into the bedroom and say to his wife, "Listen, things are not the way I, I've I've uh, uh, portrayed them to be, or I'm not the the uh, breadwinner I thought I was going to be, and we really have to cut back and um, and." Um, live a more simple life, maybe sell the house, sell the cars, take the kids out of private school, whatever it's going to be. And he's afraid to do that. And mostly the reason I think he's afraid to do that is because he's afraid his wife will leave him. Mm -hmm. And because he thinks that she's only there for the money. And, and he doesn't really recognize that his wife would like nothing more than to have the husband back that she married 10 years ago. Yeah. And, and, but they're not communicating. So, sure. so had he been able to, had he had the, 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 the uh, emotional wherewithal to do that, he, all of this could come out in a very different way, a more positive way, but he avoids the conversation. He gets sucked into the problem. And then while he's in the problem, he continues to lie. He's telling his wife, oh, you know, even though she finds out about it, he says, oh, don't worry about it. Everything is going to be okay. And everything's not going to be okay. And, and so hence the lack of trust and, you know, the family unit uh, disintegrating. So interesting because it starts from a place of emotional detachment and the, the consequences that are the result of it. Um, you know, what struck me in the article that I read about your work is that it's not necessarily, as and you've said this earlier in the podcast, it's not necessarily people set out to commit these crimes. It's a series of very small but not great decisions that lead them down this path. And this, I think, is one of them, which is, you know, I, I can't be authentic at home because of what it may cost me. Uh, instead of it coming from a place of, gosh, I, you know, if, if I'm able to solve this, if I'm able to get my wife on board with this, I can avoid a whole cascading impact that actually devastates the whole family system. Have you seen families get through this, you know, in the, in the oh, folks wow. you've served, primarily men? Okay. I'm oh, sure, but it, but what what get through what what you what I mean by get through it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's intact. You sure, know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of of of, um, of of different ways that could look. I mean, one example would be I mean, in my own example, I had estrangement from my children for a while, and uh, it was difficult. You know. Um, uh, I, I wasn't the dad that they thought I was. Now I was a, a loving father. I was. There's no question that I was a loving, present father. But I didn't know how to be a father. I didn't really know how to. I, those were skills I just had never learned. And um, so, um, in some ways, my imprisonment liberated my kids from from the the huge shadow that that dad and, um, and my problems um, cast over the family. And so then they were able to, um, they were able to uh, find their way and become their own people. You know, I mean, we have, uh, you know, like a political climate right now where you see that there are politicians sucking up all the oxygen in the room. <laughs> yes. And, and I'm, I'm trying to be really fair here. I was just going to say unnamed but, politicians. <laughs> unnamed politicians. But I can tell you that successful businessmen, successful professionals, and especially when 
they come under this kind of scrutiny, they're sucking up all the oxygen right. in the room. There is no room for anyone else to even go through their own process. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, what a gift to be able to help families go through a process that they've been stifled. Um, and sometimes that's after, you know, the, uh, the, the person who's being prosecuted, sometimes that's after they've gone away. So you brought it up. So I'm going to I'm going to pull on this thread just a little bit. Do you think the examples that we've had of politicians committing crimes and having it be so publicly displayed has contributed to others feeling like, well, if they can do it, I can do it? Or do you think they're totally separate issues? I think societally, I, I, I'd be uh, um, I, I have one answer societally that I think what's going on is just terrible. Sure. And um, and that's without any, uh, you know, without any political, uh, uh, um, particular uh, 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 political leanings in that in that in that Mm -hmm. statement. But I don't think that sophisticated business people are really affected by that. You know, it's the, the, the real problem here is not so much what the public perceives you know mm-hmm. the people out in mid-america the flyover states they don't they don't it's a, what they perceive is not really what's going on here i mean this is in many ways dog eat dog mm-hmm. um competition everybody doing what's in their own best interest mm-hmm. and that's that's business people that's uh prosecutors that's defense attorneys it's everybody's got an agenda and the more you understand everybody's agenda, the more the person who's being prosecuted can advocate for themselves and make sure that they're getting as fair a shake as they possibly can. From a support group standpoint, by banding all together, there have been 750 people on our, on our support group and our podcast um, thus far. Um, we're sharing information that was never available before. That gives us power. That gives us strength. You know, we can't be lied to the same way. But from a, a, a legal, from a law firm standpoint, that was the unique proposition that led me to first get my law license back and then open up grant law because there was nobody out there who was focusing on the real world problem swirling around a, a person in a family who's being prosecuted for white collar crimes. Now, mm-hmm. it's it's easy to think that, you know, okay, but I, I've been arrested, I need a criminal lawyer. Sure. But how, how to find the right criminal lawyer, how to negotiate that, how to make sure that this balancing is done the right way, um, not easy. I mean, usually uh, if you get arrested, you call up either if you have a business lawyer, you call up your business lawyer or you call up your brother-in-law or you call up somebody. Everybody knows somebody, but that doesn't make them the right person for you. And then even if you go to that particular criminal lawyer, they don't know thing about business and partnership dissolutions and and uh, bankruptcy issues and real estate issues and tax issues and all the other issues that surround a sophisticated business life that are now affected by the, the criminal issue. But they all have to be considered because the very worst thing that could happen 
is that 10 years from now, somebody looks back and says, if I had known then what I know now, I would have done things very differently. So mm-hmm. what I, I present as a lawyer and what the um, support group presents as a, as a community is all of that information in advance so that better decisions can be made right now up front. And the, the results we're getting is, are, are incredible. I mean, it's not all quantifiable because this is a very opaque area of the world. Um, defense lawyers tend to want to define things by the amount of time that their clients get um, in terms of sentencing. But I can tell you that while that's important, it's far from the only thing that needs to be considered. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, and uh, the balancing of all of those issues is something that uh, very few in the legal community um, have focused on, um, not because of any reason other than why would they? I mean, uh, sure. I, I, I've been through it, lived and it, so I right. have a particular passion for it. You know, I have that lived experience, but also I had um, a skill set that was driven by being a corporate general counsel and recovery and reentry and being a minister, all these things being able to bring to it that gives a particular perspective that um, not many people in the country have. Actually, no one in the country has. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a singular um, specialty. And I'm, I'm hoping other people uh, follow behind because it's much needed. You know, I always say, I think if you've lived an experience, even if it's a difficult one, you can, you know it better than almost anybody else. So, you know, it's very much yeah. the founding of our company was based on my family's experience dealing with my brother's addiction issue. So what mm-hmm. you're saying really resonates because I think you know, there's nobody you're going to defend more than yourself. And there's nobody, there's no time you're going to pay more attention to a medical diagnosis than when you're the one experiencing it. And so you kind yeah, exactly. you get a better sense of how a system mm-hmm. works. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I called you tomorrow and said, I know someone who has just been indicted on a, on a white collar crime, you know, short of just calling you as the advice, which is where I would start, but what are things that they should be thinking about or their family members should be thinking about as they start down this path? Well, I, I do think that you actually raised a, a huge issue because the way that this all goes for someone is highly dependent on the point of entry. Mm-hmm. Because, because is that per, does that person have their best interests at heart, really? And that's not to cast dispersions against any part of the profession, but are they really focused on what the best long-term outcome is for that person? So um, I, I would say that, you know, that um, bullet point one is, um, is, we, meaning the support group, we want to be the first call. And we'll lead you to a lot of the resources that you need. Um, and certainly if it's not the support group and and you want to call me uh, personally or as a lawyer, it's, it's basically the same thing. Because um, we need to find the very best resources. The second is, how does this all work in terms of a budget? Because unfortunately, you know, you you get what you pay for um, pretty much in terms of um, lawyering and a defense. And these things have to be at the kind of right level. You know, a, a $500,000 um, criminal defense 
is not going to necessarily be better than a $200,000 criminal defense. It's not going to necessarily be better or more appropriate for your circumstances. And so you want to make sure that what you're getting for your money is exactly what you need. And that can be a little counterintuitive. Also, there has to be enough money in that budget for um, evidence gathering and forensics and experts. Um, lawyers at their very best, all they can really do is introduce evidence and, and make argument. But the lawyers aren't in charge of, of the facts of, of what the digging underneath is or or in the case of, say, someone who has, say, a drug addiction or mental illness, of, of doing the mitigation and hiring forensic psychologists and hiring investigators. I mean, I'm not saying the lawyer can't hire those people, but they can't do the forensics. They can't sure. do the investigation. And if there's no money in the budget for that, then all it is is argument. It's not underlying, underlying facts and underlying evidence to be able to present. And I can tell you that I've been involved in in cases that never became cases because hmm. I like to bring in the experts on day one because I want to know what we've got. I want to know who we've got sitting here and what our best arguments are going to be. And, and most of the time that means what led them to do this, where we started this podcast. And if we take the humanity out of it, then all this is is a, a numbers negotiation, how many months, how much money. But if we could add the humanity in at the very beginning, then we're talking about people. And we're talking about how this really affects everybody and how do we get the best or the most just result given these circumstances. And um, unfortunately, there's a lot of lawyers who don't bring in the experts. And I know your firm are full of experts. Um, but they don't bring in the experts until uh, very late in the game. Sometimes even sometimes even post sentencing. So um, that's just not. Uh, you know, I find that's just bad business, and I find it's just not the right way to make sure that the people who are uh, who you're trying to shepherd through the process get a fair shake. It's so helpful. I think it. I think it's a great point, and I think you know, understanding the backstory behind somebody not only makes a more compelling story for a judge or a jury, depending on how a trial goes, but it, it gives context as to, to why you're looking for a certain outcome. And I think, I, I think your specialty in this particular area and the community you've built is so essential to people because like anything else, there's a certain stigma. If your crime has impacted people in your community. You know, there's there's a certain way that these families, I'm sure, feel very alone in the process. And so I just first want to say thank you again for joining us today and, and really thank you more broadly for taking this incredible story and experience of yourself to, to do good in the world. I think I, I love seeing situations like that where people have transformed their own experiences, positive or negative, into an expertise that can benefit others. So thank you. And thank you to thank our you. listeners and our... Thank you. Um, and thank you to our listeners and our audience for tuning in for another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet. Feel free to leave us a positive review if you enjoyed today's episode, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.